Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center here in Santa Monica, California. We've got a beautiful day here. Please be seated. Um, today we have a very special guest, a man some of you, many of you may know, uh, um, a lawyer named Timothy Walton. He's been one of the most active lawyers in, in, the, spam, uh, in the spam sector, um, but on the plaintiff side. So many of you may have first been introduced to him um, by a letter <laughs> it, it, saying, um, complaining about something your client or something you may have done. So, um, Timothy, are you with us? Yes. Good morning. So the Balsam v. Um, v. Trangos is a curious case. Uh, first of all, the $7,000 judgment, you know, what is, is this a, a good use of resources to not only have a, a, a going to trial over $7,000, but to actually have a, now an appellate um, decision and a whole process over $7,000? Well, it was really the defendant, I think, that um, made it necessary um, the the defendant, a sender of email marketing, um, refused to believe that what it was doing was in any way a violation of law. And uh, um, so the people that were making the decisions in this case um, really wanted to stand on principle and have a court decide. And so that is what happened. And um, you know, so at this point, the, the trial judgment included, I believe, was it eighty-three thousand dollars in attorney's fees. Yes. And now the you know um, the appellate fees will will be added, or was that both sides will bear their costs? Uh, the appellate court awarded uh, fees and costs. So um, that's a big jump from seven thousand dollars. So let's let's get to the heart of the case. Um, you're basically. Your client, Dan Balson, who you've represented on, you know, over at least 20 cases or more, um, was suing Trancos for uh, seven emails, was it? Uh, eight, originally. Eight. And, and because it was eight, that would be an $8,000 judgment. Was, um, there was why, why one advertiser claims? that the uh, trial court felt was good enough to not warrant liability. So if it's only eight cases, why not go small claims? 
Well, at that time, the small claims limit was $7,500. Okay. But the other thing was that um, uh, Dan Balsam really wanted to get equitable relief, an injunction that would require the sender to comply with the law. And that is not something you can get in small claims. And did, did he get that? I forget. No. Have you, has that, have you ever been successful in getting, other than default actions, have you been successful in getting uh, equitable relief? Uh, Under the only California through either default actions or stipulations. Okay. So, um, so I've never had a court award an injunction over the objection of the spammer. Okay. So Trancos goes to trial, um, and this would have been, what, 2009? Yeah, about that. Um, I think and, it was May of 2009. And it goes to trial, and the, um, the judgment comes down for $7,000, so you won on seven of the eight emails. Right. How long was the trial? Uh, I think it was a five-day trial. So that was practically a day for each email. Amazing. And, <laughs> yeah. um, so um, it goes. There's to always the a lot of Go legal wrangling that goes on. I'm sorry. There's always a lot of legal wrangling about specific issues and uh, whether evidence will be admitted or not, um, and then the testimony of the witnesses, in particular, um, the parties, uh, took up a fair amount of time. And, um, and that's, that's, that's presenting your case. <laughs> right. And um, so you, you come down with a $7,000 judgment, and, um, and then it gets, goes up on appeal. And so we just got the decision, what, two weeks ago, I believe? Yep. February 24th, February. the decision comes down. And um, not even two weeks, I guess. And the decision is, is in favor of your client, um, Dan Balsam, so a win for you. And um, but the thing that is, the, although he actually um, there was your client had made a claim that he should be entitled to recovery under um, the Consumer Legal Remedies Act, and the, his appeal there was denied. Correct. Right. That was not um, seeking damages. That was the injunction. Okay. And and so, um, but the big thing on appeal was that um, in in your case. And what was the decision um, as to whether or not, at the trial level, whether or not the email from addresses were misleading? Well, I think that um, there were three different things that the court noticed on appeal. And in context, what it really came down to was an admonition that Senders of email marketing should not try to hide their identities. And so the, the three issues that the appellate court focused on were proxy registration of domain names, um, the use of from names that included um, purported business entities that were not legitimately registered, and then um, an address in the body of the email that used a mailboxes, et cetera, um, where the um, registration of the mailboxes, et cetera, account was, use, was using information that was inaccurate. So the, the spammer in this case, the sender of the email, went to some great length to hide, and part of the testimony that um, the CEO gave at trial was to explain why they really wanted to hide from the recipients of their email, and it was because they would get uh, angry telephone calls, and uh, uh, they felt that they were being harassed by people who didn't want to receive their email, and so they felt it necessary to hide. Although, Tim, I recall, um, I remember the FTC had their um, workshop in 2003 on you know, that kind of led up to the enactment of canned spam. And at that time, both 
you know, anti-spam activists and email marketers, you know, the issue was so charged that both sides reporting getting death threats. So, I mean, you know, there is um, yes. you know, some, some, uh, some you know, basis there. Sure. Um, but the, the court's position essentially was it's not fair to send out millions of email advertisements and not provide a true opportunity for people to complain about it. Um, the only um, method of complaining about the spam was either to opt out, which in mm-hmm. essence means telling a spammer that your email address is actually being used and viewed, or uh, sending communication to the proxy registration service and hoping that it gets forwarded and that the uh, actual spammer will act on it. And the court said something very interesting in this regard, which was that um, there's no incentive for a spammer to actually remove somebody's email from their database. It just costs them money to remove it, whereas if they keep it, then they could make money. But that's actually not true. Because there's a liability under the Can Spam Act, and um, we have potential liability to whoever else they market on behalf of. Um, well, there's the, the only that. liability under the Can Spam Act relies on um, either the the government or an ISP to enforce it. So recipients like Dan Balsam don't have standing under Can Spam. True. Now, the, um, the other thing is, is there any evidence that the um, privacy registrations don't forward the information? Because it, it sounds like, you know, Tranco's, you got in touch with them. Um, there, there is some evidence in this regard, although it didn't come up in this particular case, the Tranco's case. But uh, um, efforts to um, enforce the ICANN registrar agreement in the past have not been wholly successful. And to a certain extent, I think that this issue is still somewhat up in the air. And while there are good reasons for privately registering a domain name, the main reason that everybody puts forward is that they don't want to get spam. And so when a spammer privately registers a domain name for the purpose of... (laughs) Avoiding spam, it's it's a little hypocritical, and uh, can spam actually addresses this as well, and and says that it's um, uh, a factor if a sender registers more than two um, domain names for the purpose of sending spam in this private way. The um, you, know, <coughs> I, I when can spam came out, and there was the whole issue of what address must be disclosed. I was I was somewhat surprised when the FTC allowed mailboxes because initially it was supposed to be physical addresses, but I think they relented right. because right. at that time there actually were you know physical threats being made, um, and I wonder what their view of that is now. But um, so let's let's get to the the meat then in in your appeal. Let me um, let me step back for a second. The um, you have a case pending against one of the um, registrars, no? Yes, that's yes. correct. And that's on this, this, this very issue, correct? Um, uh, yes, the issue of proxy registration. Okay. And I, I want to ask you to talk about that, but I just, just thought we know that you know, if people want to look. Um, what, what case is that, if people want to look up, look up that? Uh, again, that's a Dan Balsam case where he okay. has sued Moniker. Okay. And, um, and so... In this case, the court made some decisions based on the fact that there was privacy registration. And, and, and where did they come down? Well, um, in essence, the, the court said that um, privacy registration is itself a violation of California law. Um, they, they said, we therefore hold, consistent with the trial court's ruling, that header information in a commercial email is falsified or misrepresented for purposes of the law when it uses a sender domain name 
that neither identifies the actual sender on its face nor is readily traceable to the sender using a publicly available online database such as Whois. But um, so when so it, it really comes down to the readily mean, traceable. Because you know, it is readily how traceable, traceable I mean, does uh, the sender have to be? Right, that's a question. And and in this case, um, it required that Balsam send a subpoena to the mailboxes, etc. store just to chase down a fake registration of a non-existent business entity. And I think that the court decided that that was not readily traceable. But aren't you confusing the concept of... I mean, people have trade names. They don't have to incorporate every trade name, nor do they have to file a DBA for every trade name. You know, it, there's a benefit to doing so, but there's nothing wrong with having trade names that aren't registered. Um, well, I'm not sure that I agree with that. I think that um, if somebody is using the Internet for legitimate business purposes, then it makes sense to want to be found. And if there's a great attempt to hide, then it suggests, anyway, that there's something to hide. Well, I, don't, I, mean, I don't know if that's true in every case, so that's, that's the thing. I, I just think it's, it's a leap to assume that just because a, a trade name's not registered, that somehow you know, it's not a valid name. And I also think this you run into the problem under can spam where you know there's language in legislative history that states you know aren't are to be allowed to prescribe you know a certain format for um from lines and well, the court was not us, saying that it know, had to one be of this way we haven't talked about what they were finding was that the actual names that were used here um were things like your business and generic dating, and I'm not sure that those would rise to the level of a protectable trademark, even in the common law trademark context. But even again, I mean, that that's not a requirement for a trade name. I mean, I could have a trade name that says cold beer, but doesn't mean I can get uh, it trademarked. It means I may have a lot of people come by on Friday, but... Um, yeah, but it also means that if you're sending out email that just uses that name, then it's awfully hard to decide who the actual sender is. And that, that's really the issue. Now, the one thing yeah. we, we haven't mentioned is that there's an intervening event between the trial and the appeal, and that's yes. the Supreme Court decision in Clefman. And, which, and another uh, decision in HyperTouch versus ValueClick. Correct. Um, but in terms of on the from line, the, the, you know, Clefman was very much an important part of this ruling. Where the, you know, when Clefman, which held that if you um, basically Clefman was arguing that um, emails using you know nonsensical domains, you know, things that aren't even words for the purposes of, of evading um, um, filters, is um, is not um, is misleading and uh, improper under the. California law and the Supreme Court said, um, you know, the fact that it's nonsensical doesn't, you know, isn't doesn't mean anything. It doesn't convey a false fact, you know, only if it's not a valid email address. Then that is a false fact. Well, but I think I the have, Clefman you know, case was extremely limited because it was only decided based upon a question certified by the Ninth Circuit. But correct. the Tranco's court. Um, pointed out the differences between that situation and this one. Uh, right. For example, in Clefman, the parties admitted that the domain names were readily traceable. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were not privately registered. But I just mentioned that because a lot of the decision on this issue was, was driven by drawing the distinction between Clefman and the Balsam and the Tranko's case. Yes. Yeah. Now, what? The, where does this leave um, private domain registration for email marketers in California today? Well, um, 
I think it's, in general, a bad idea. Um, and I don't think you're going to be surprised to hear me say that. But uh, <laughs> I, I think that it's one chair. thing to um, have a website domain name that is privately registered. And it's another thing to send unsolicited commercial email using a privately registered domain name. Let me With ask a you website, this. somebody has to go there and find it, right? Right. And typically, a website is, is going to include other contact information on it, whereas unsolicited email, by definition, is not something that the recipient asked for. So let me ask you this. I set up uh, an email address, you know, a website, and it's privately registered, you know, sammymcspammy.com. <laughs> and, um, and on that site is, you know, information for how to contact um, the Sammy McSpammy team. <laughs> okay. okay. And, um, but the domain is privately registered. And I send email from the um, world-famous Sammy McSpammy <laughs> domain um, to your clients. Where does that fall in your view? Well, I think that's a harder case. And um, hard cases make for bad law, but in this case, it, it's somewhat in between. And in fact, most senders of email marketing don't do that. In this case, Trancos could have sent email that came from trancos.com, but they didn't want to. They had separate domain names that were privately registered. Right, but I mean, in essence, we got we got to take a when we come back. Um, we're gonna take a short break. When we come back. We'll we'll, we'll um, pursue this a little bit further. But we're talking to Timothy Wallen, and you're listening to Cyberlaw Business Report on Webmaster Radio. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Johnson, what's this mantis I keep hearing about? Do we need to call an exterminator? No, sir. Moby Mantis is our new SMS marketing tool. SM what? SMS. Text messaging. Moby Mantis lets us communicate directly with our customers in real time. We can send promos, coupons. It even lets our customers market for us by sharing offers with their friends online. It's been great for business. Hmm. Sounds expensive. Actually, I sign us up for an extended free trial. It hasn't cost us a dime. Good work, Johnson. I guess the only thing we'll be exterminating is the competition. To get your free extended trial of Moby Mantis, text RADIO to 21691. That's RADIO to 21691 for Moby Mantis. November 16th, 2004. The beginning of WebmasterRadio.fm and its immediate impact on the internet business world. Ad tech. Afcon. Search engine strategies. Conversion conference. Search bash. Affiliate bash. We bring you the most extensive and detailed trade show coverage. Coast to coast and worldwide. Trade show coverage delivered your way. Download it on demand now. On webmasterradio.fm. It's time for the 2012 SCS Conference and Expo to make its way back to the Big Apple. New York City. SCS New York 2011 makes its way to the New York Hilton March 19th through the 23rd. SCS New York 2011 will feature over 70 sessions, nearly 100 exhibitors, and networking opportunities with thousands of marketing and search engine optimization professionals. SCS New York 2011 will start with a high-profile opening keynote from Google's digital marketing evangelist, Avinash Kaushik. Don't delay. Come to SCS New York 2012, March 19th through the 23rd, inside the New York Hilton. Register right now at searchenginestrategies.com. That's searchenginestrategies.com. Webmasterradio.fm. Welcome to the place your competitors get their edge. Jump on it. We're here for you 24-7. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back, and um, we're here with um, Timothy Walton, and we're talking about his recent victory in the court of, with the Court of Appeal in Balsam v. Trancos. Tim, um, 
I completely forgot what question I was going to ask you before the break. But, uh, <laughs> well, you set up this uh, weird hypothetical that doesn't, in my opinion, match reality, um, but suggesting that if a domain name is privately registered and there's a website at it and they use it to send email, then is that a violation of law? <clears throat> and the reason I don't think it matches with reality is that in most cases, the senders don't really want the sender domain name matched back to them. And so they privately register the domain names that they're using to send email, but then for their own website address where they want their customers to find them, um, that contains all sorts of contact information that makes it easy to find them. Well, I mean, there's also issues of you know email filters, too, that uh, I think drive it. Now, but it seems that the decision... Wasn't necessarily just we're going to make this decision based just on whether or not it's privately registered. It's like that's a very important factor, but we're going to look at these other things about whether or not you can find the name elsewhere. Right. I think it was to a certain extent the totality of circumstances here that um, made the appellate court look askance at the um, claims of the defendant. And there are some companies that send spam that go to great efforts to hide, and for good reason, because they don't want to deal with the bounce backs, they don't want to deal with the unsubscribes, they don't want to deal with the angry recipients. Um, and some companies go to more efforts than others. Um, Trancos actually is not the... Uh, the worst offender, in my opinion, that I've run across, but they're right up there. I mean, they they actually created this mailboxes, etc. address, and then when they signed the forms for the mailboxes, etc., they used a fake name, um, and so it just made it really, really difficult to get a hold of them. And when um, Dan Balsam sent mail, certified mail, to the address in the email. It was ignored. So, Timothy, we only got a, a few minutes left. Um, in, the, in the time we have, can you tell us, one, um, do you expect there to be an appeal to the Supreme Court? And two, um, how can people um, follow you and um, what's, what's your next activity? I am told that Trancos is intending to follow through on its opportunities for reconsideration and or appeal. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I think that their, their time is uh, obviously still running. Um, so who knows what the future holds. Um, I, I don't think that they're likely to prevail based on the opinion that's come out. As far as what I'm doing um, uh, in this regard in other areas, um, my intent is to um, expand everybody's understanding of the law so that marketers can know where the bright lines are and recipients can understand what their rights are in this regard with the hope that someday... Um, people who don't want to get spam can filter it, and uh, people who do can get it and not okay. worry that the sender is some shady guy in Czechoslovakia or Russia hawking fake watches. Oh, no, now he did it. Now we're going to get calls from the embassy in Czechoslovakia. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Timothy, uh, it's been a pleasure, and um, as always, I'm sorry our, our time was short, but um, do stay in touch and, and let, hope you consider coming back as this case or your other cases progress. And um, everyone, this is Timothy Walden, um, and probably the leading um, anti-spam um, internet attorney in the U.S., and it's always been a pleasure, Tim. Have a good day. Thank you very much.
So um, in a few minutes, we're going to be joined by um, John Nicholson, who is with um, Pillsbury um, Madison. Um, it's, I mean, don't know their full name, actually, because they merged with several other um, prominent firms. I think it's Pillsbury Madison, Shaw Pittman. Um, and um, it's a very respected firm in D.C. And, um, and his background is in cybersecurity. Um, and he actually has counseled a lot of clients in this area. Um, in addition, um, he has a quite unique background. Um, he was a physicist with the U.S. Department of Energy's Superconducting Super Collider Program. And so um, he's no slouch, that's for sure. Um, and this is, it's, it, this is a, um, it's interesting, this is a good day to get guests from um, D.C. because you have both the ACC and the Big East tournament going on. And I recall that this time of year, all of a sudden a lot of people ended up um, having meetings outside and they would sneak into little um, restaurants and um, trying to watch the game during during the afternoon. But um, luckily we got John Nicholson. John, are you with us? Yes, I am. And um, thank you for joining us. I, I noticed um, you went to... Uh, um, Vanderbilt, um, is the SET tournament going on now, too? Um, i got to admit that I'm not a, a big basketball fan. Uh, I, I'm an annual basketball fan once March Madness starts and there's some money on the line. But uh, I actually don't know the answer. I hope That's I do better with the rest right. of your um, questions. Well, it wasn't your undergrad, anyway. Um, so, so, John, um, we got um, some... Some bills pending in Capitol Hill on cybersecurity. It seems to be a, a partisan battle over you know which way to approach it. But um, we start. We just had a week in which the um, FBI director said that the threat from cyber attacks is is actually equal to or greater than the threat from terrorism. And so, uh, could you give us just a brief overview of where we are uh, on the cybersecurity legislation and, and really what's at the meat of the issue? Well, I, I think you're right to characterize it as a partisan issue, but that's not that big of a challenge given that everything on the Hill these days is a partisan issue. Yeah, um, I think they vote over whether or not to have air conditioning on weekends, and that, <laughs> that gets a filibuster. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, when, when you know what, it, what it's like here in the summer, for them to disagree on that gives you a testament to uh, <laughs> just how much they disagree over everything. Um, but the, the, FBI's, the FBI director's... Uh, statement is probably correct because you know terrorism although it is dramatic and Im- has significant impact certainly for those involved and for the economy um, doesn't have the type of ongoing and persistent impact that problems with cybersecurity have and those kinds of issues are things that can affect our competitiveness and can affect industry and could theoretically affect life, health, and safety for years, if not decades, to come. So uh, I, I think it's absolutely correct to characterize the level of that threat. There was a, uh, a Norton study in 2011 that calculated the global cost of cybercrime at around $114 billion, and when they added in the combined value of time lost by victims in terms of data breaches and other right. things, they brought that up to $388 billion, which brings it up well past the realm of most global drug trafficking. Wow, and incredible. And so when you start to think and, and, about you know, that, go ahead, sorry. The magnitude or even greater than you know, a hurricane. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean... Uh, and a hurricane is just, you know, it's a natural disaster. We can prepare for it. We can mitigate against it. And we should be doing the same kind of preparation and mitigation at a national level to deal with this same problem. Well, that brings us to a question that I have. And it seems that there's little market incentive to really address um, exposure or, or the kind of lack of uh, preparedness that may exist for cybersecurity. Um, you know, the consequences only occur when uh, you know, there's a breach and it becomes public. And even then, the SEC has just promulgated rules for when you must disclose such an event. Um, it, is there really a market incentive to have adequate security? I, I think there is a market incentive. Um, 
Larry Ponemon and the Ponemon Institute do an annual survey of um, data breaches and other similar instance, incidents. And a significant part of the damage that they calculate associated with data breaches is customer churn and customers who will not participate in or will not use a given store or a given service um, after a data breach if they don't feel like they've been sufficiently protected and the company is not sufficiently apologetic. So at the most basic, if you're a consumer-facing organization and you've got those kinds of issues, then there's a significant potential cost there. So, um, I mean, in breaking down what's pending on Capitol Hill, you do have um, the first issue is data breaches. And, I mean, there, there it seems to be a crying need for legislation because we have, you know, 30 or 40 more you know, states that have their own versions of data breach requirements. And there's a benefit to having a single uniform standard so that it's clear and it applies at all states. Uh, absolutely true. I mean, I, I think I and the, those of my fellow lawyers who de- help companies deal with those data breaches are probably the only people who would like to see the current fragmented standard continue. Because <laughs> if there's only one standard, then that's pretty easy to respond to. Forty-seven different states—they gotta call me. Um, I have a feeling they'll like still it. be calling you. But um, what, what are the other uh, issues in contention then? Well, the, the real question is the real fundamental question is levels of control, involvement, and information sharing. To what degree should the government be specifying any kind of security standards? To what degree should they be mandating uh, information sharing about cybersecurity incidents? And to what degree should companies be protected if they share that information with the government? And who in the government is going to be driving the bus as far as this is concerned? And those are some of the real sort of fundamental differences between the various bills that are on the Hill right now. And they they reflect some of the fundamental philosophical differences between the Republicans and the Democrats. Right. Um, And do we have um, any models to look at? I mean, have the European Union or Japan or um, Canada addressed this in a way that can – Give us an example of how this should or should not be done. From a cybersecurity perspective, not really. Um, it different approaches have been taken around the world towards different things, and we really took the lead in data breach notification legislation, and that's why we have forty-seven different states with those laws. Whereas the Europeans and most of the rest of the world actually took a more privacy-centric approach to dealing with personal information, but not necessarily cybersecurity. Um, and part of that is just simply because the U.S. has taken a much more uh, technological approach um, and so many of the technology companies are here. So many of the sort of fundamental components of the Internet are here in Virginia. And we've tended to focus more on cybersecurity because it's been more of an issue here. And um, do you, you hear a lot of alarm bells that have been rung over both the, our military's uh, readiness to respond to cybersecurity issues as well as in the private sector. And you, what do you think the current state is in that regard, um, particularly the private um, sector? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, I mean, I'm, especially I'm referring to the private sector. You know, how prepared are we for the cyber threats that are out there? Um, well, we, there, I saw an, an interesting uh, report recently, um, a, uh, a capstone paper from uh, – and now I'm blanking on his name. Um, but one of the things, it analyzed the uh, threat from China 
And one of the things he said was basically, if you think you're not going to be hacked, you're wrong. And if you think you haven't been hacked, you're also wrong. <laughs> um, I was also I was talking recently to a friend of mine who's um, who does cybersecurity for a telecom company, and that person basically just said, you know, I'm increasingly of the belief that we've all been hacked, and some of us just don't realize it yet. Wow. So that's definitely an and, alarm bell to be wrong, but. Yeah. Um, in an election year may not get heard. <laughs> um, well, it'll be heard, and the alarm bell will be rung by a number of people uh, in order to pursue, drive sufficient fear to support their own particular agenda. Now, are we, are we near any um, votes coming up? I know the Senate Judiciary was trying to report out a bill to the Senate floor for a vote, and the Republicans were, were objecting to that. Um, is it likely that we'll have any votes anytime soon on this? It's hard to tell. I mean, you know, they're so uh, wrapped up in uh, fighting with each other. I mean, the to get into some of the bills, I mean, right now we've got the Cybersecurity Act of 2012, which is in the Senate, which is sponsored by, uh, you know, Lieberman, Collins, Rockefeller, Feinstein, and others. And Senator Reid supports that bill, and his original intention was to bring it directly to the floor. And the Republicans have said that they want that bill to go through all of the major committees that might have jurisdiction, commerce, judiciary, <laughs> energy, <laughs> intelligence, homeland security. Small so, business, yeah. And then in you know, 2014 he, when they're done? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that bill was already covered in both Homeland Security and Commerce, and it's it's the result of bills that were worked on through hearings over the last three years in both of those committees, and they finally combined the two bills that had been reported out of those two committees to create the Cybersecurity Act of 2012. So you know it it's had a fair amount of work done at all on it already, um, but. You know, the, the Republicans would like to stall it if they can. If they can't stall it, they've got an alternative to it, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that one. And is the, return, is the alternative bill, um, is it kind of relying heavily on laissez-faire to, you know, the, the, the genius of the market will solve the problem? or? Um, well, it, it certainly more than... Uh, than the uh, the bipartisan bill, um, the Republicans' bill, the uh, Secure IT Act, which uh, stands for Strengthening and Enhancing Cybersecurity by Using Research, Education, Information, and Technology <laughs> Act. Yeah, I always uh, think that must be the most highest paid person on Capitol Hill. You know, the person that comes up with the names that so he can fit the the catchy abbreviation and then use that. You know, the act. You know, like can spam or whatever. You know, that person right. you know, it must be great in like you know, New York Times crossword puzzles. <laughs> it probably is, uh, but I mean, at, at least with this one, McCain had the decency to say that whoever came up with that piece of sausage ought to be fired. <laughs> um, but they, I mean, there there are a lot of prominent Republicans who are trying to put this one forward. McCain, K. Bailey Hutchison, Chuck Grassley, Saxby Chambliss, Lisa Murkowski, and a few others. And it really does stress voluntary information sharing. And it really focuses more on pushing the NSA and the Air Force's Cyber Command as the lead entities for dealing with this problem, whereas the bipartisan bill pushes uh, DHS much more. And, and the, uh, what, why the, the difference? Is one because it couldn't be, um, have enforcement authority? Um, well, the uh, the Secure IT Act actually does include a criminal element, um, and uh, but there are a number of people who have commented on the Republicans' proposal. The ACLU is very concerned. The Center for Democracy and Technology is concerned. Even Richard Clark said that having NSA and Cyber Command as the face of this effort makes no sense. Huh. Um, and Richard Clark, the former National Security Advisor. Yes. 
so, I mean, you'd like to think he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> they always like that. Um, and uh, so under the Republican bill, information could be provided to cyber se- these cybersecurity centers that would be established, and private companies would send data to them that would document network activity or protocols known to be associated with malicious cyber actors or that might signify malicious intent. Unfortunately, I mean, those provisions, those terms are pretty broad, and the Act itself doesn't actually define what network activity is or what malicious intent is. Wow. Uh, So, you know, you could have people dumping information into these cybersecurity exchanges with, without really any clear guidance as to what they're supposed to be providing. So where do you see this going? Um, you know, we have an election year, so it's going to be a shortened schedule. We'll have a break you know, probably from you know, mid-July to early September for the conventions and another break you know, early, from early October to election day. Um, you know, is there time or is there a will to get anything done this year? Oh, I, I, I think it depends, a lot depends on what happens. I mean, the, uh, the incidents like anonymous attacking various websites um, tend to raise concern, sometimes concern that's in excess of the amount of damage they've actually done. Um, the things that Anonymous and LulzSec and some of the other activists do raise concerns, but they don't actually highlight the real problem. And the underlying problem is the attacks on our infrastructure and the attacks on our companies and our systems that are sucking away information, sucking out intellectual property, and really doing serious harm to U.S. companies and global companies' ability to compete. And then you get into the issues of confidential information, potential access to other very sensitive information, and you start seeing a lot of things where there's an enormous risk out there, but it's really bubbling under the surface. And a lot of the people who are, a lot of the congressmen and senators who are trying to take action in this area recognize the problem. And they recognize the desperate need to do something about this. But there's so much paralysis and suspicion. And, you know, they've done things badly in the past. I mean, SOPA and PIPA come to mind, where there is so much sensitivity in the community, in the technology industry, and just so much distrust of and dislike for Congress and government in the public that it's hard for them to actually muster the political capital and the political will to push these things forward. But isn't it hard to muster political capital on an issue like this just because it's so technical? I mean, I think SOPA is an exception because they were able to kind of get the zeitgeist. But yeah, I I think that's absolutely true, and that's an excellent point. Um, it's hard to get people excited about this, even though this is something that really Except affects our listeners. Them because it because <laughs> it's so hard to understand. Um, it's hard to get energy around it. So um, we only have a few minutes left. So why don't you tell us um, your, where people can contact you and um, some of the things that you're going to be up to? Oh well, um, I can be reached at. Um, I'm an attorney with Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman, and uh, you can reach me at John J O H N dot Nicholson N I C H O L S O N at Pillsbury Law P I L L S b u r y l a w dot com and we have to add the law to that to distinguish ourselves from the Pillsbury doughboy <laughs> I won't try to do the giggle 
Uh, I, I can't either, despite my uh, personal resemblance. <laughs> now, um, are you presenting anywhere soon? Um, I don't have anything going on right now. Um, I'm actually, I've got a couple of deals that I'm working on that are uh, taking up most of my time. Um, and then uh, my wife and I are actually having a baby in May, so uh, the idea of me flying off and presenting anything uh, do, does not make her happy. No, I can imagine. Um, they, you want to make sure that when they have the you know, medical instruments, they're not going to be aimed at you. <laughs> yep, and she knows where I sleep. That helps. So well, It's been a pleasure, John. I appreciate you joining us. And um, we may call you back as things progress on Capitol Hill if that happens. But um, thank you again. I hope you'll come back. Everyone, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Um, we've had an interesting discussion on spam and cybersecurity. Next week, we're going to have Mike Zanis from the Interactive I- Advertising Bureau, yes, the IAB, to talk about the president's new initiative, the Consumer Privacy Bill of Rights. So join us next week when we have Mike Zanis from the IAB on. Um, hope your um, fortunes do well on this championship week in college basketball. And, um, and then as the uh, March Madness begins, we'll be joining you next week here. And this is Bennett Kelly um, with the Internet Law Center saying, quarters adjourned, listen for us on webmasterradio.fm or download us on the iTunes. And please spread the word. Thanks again, everyone. Have a good week. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.